As Matt said, we're starting a series on Sundays looking at the book of Ecclesiastes. It's going to run over the next few weeks. If you'd like to turn to Ecclesiastes, or keep it open if you've closed it, it's on page 662. You need nimble fingers this morning. I'm going to move around a little bit, but I'll try and keep that to a minimum. But uh, Ecclesiastes 662, that would be great if you could have that open. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that your word comes to us in all kinds of different ways, different styles, different approaches. And sometimes it comes to us with comfort. Sometimes it brings a particular insight, and sometimes it is intended to provoke us to think carefully and clearly and realistically. And so, Father, as we come to this book of Ecclesiastes, which aims to do precisely that, you will give us understanding and responsive hearts, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> Amen. Um, I don't know about you, but uh, I, I remember thinking when I was going through those countless teenage crises that I went through, and I think I had more than my fair share, to be honest. When I was going through those, I, I, reached the, I, I remember thinking that one day I'd work my way through all of those things, or rather, they would disappear, and somehow life would begin to start making sense. It would begin to come together. I don't know whether you share anything of that kind of feeling, that you begin to experience some measure of success, of some measure of contentment, some measure of fulfillment. I don't know whether you... That, my guess is that's a common experience. We, we look for and we expect that at some point, life will begin to make sense to us. It will come together. Because we all think we're special. And we are. And Ecclesiastes says God has placed eternity in our hearts, so there is something of transcendence about human beings. And so I think for all of us, there is that sense that my life matters, and I should begin to understand what my life means and how I can best live it. And so for a lot of people, that explains, in so many ways, the direction, the core, and the motivation for their life. So people search for that in career, through education, through success, through money, through love, through relationships. There is this deeply ingrained sense that we have, if only we could find the right career, if we could only get the promotion that we want, move to the area we want, get the relationship we want, then life will begin to come together and make sense. And we will attain some measure of contentment and satisfaction and purpose. Is that ringing any bells anyway? Or is it just me? And then what happens is life. Have you noticed that? Life happens. What the writer to Ecclesiastes calls life under the sun. Stuff happens. 
Here are my expectations for my life. Here are the things that I anticipate and look forward to. And then I find that experience somehow falls short. I face disappointment. I face pushback. Love doesn't always blossom. Sometimes love can be painful and destructive. The career path doesn't materialize in the way that I had hoped. My best laid schemes somehow fall apart. We reach a disjunction, a, a clash between our anticipation and our expectation of what our life could and should be and what it really is. And that leads us into this first lesson from Ecclesiastes. The first lesson from Ecclesiastes is this. If you think that one day life will come together and reach some kind of level of equilibrium where everything's in its right place, and if you live your life by searching for those kinds of things in your life through things like your career or success or money or even relationships, whatever it is, you will discover it does not work. In the title of this first talk, you'll never work it all out. Let's have a look at what's going on in Ecclesiastes. Our guide here is Solomon. Chapter 1 and verse 1 describes this figure who's going to talk us through life. He says, I was uh, the words of the teacher, David, son of David, king in Jerusalem. And what he's going to do, what Solomon is going to do, is guide us through the experience of life. And you couldn't have a better guide than Solomon. In Old Testament terms, in the first section of the Bible, that is, Solomon is the epitome of grandeur and glamour and success and magnificence and power. His achievements are unparalleled. He's a statesman. He's a poet. He's a scientist. He's an author. He is a, he's a Renaissance man before the Renaissance. He knows stuff about everything. He even knows stuff about things that you didn't even know existed. Solomon knows so much. And what Solomon does, this man also endowed with extraordinary wisdom, is he says, what I'm going to do is do a life experiment. I'm going to take the best that life has to offer, the things that life under the sun offers, and I'm going to explore them and experience them to the deepest possible level I can. Because I want to work out what life is about under the sun. What it's about, all these things to do with work and love and projects and all that life has to offer. What is it really all about? And so I am going to push everything to the limit and find out what it's about. And he's not going to do it recklessly. He's not going to do it recklessly. 
He's going to think about it carefully. Chapter 1 and verse 16 tells us he's increased in wisdom more than anyone who's ruled over Jerusalem before me. And in chapter 2 verse 10, he tells us that what he's going to do, or chapter 2 verse 3 rather, he tells us what he's going to do is, is he's going to apply all this by wisdom. So he, this isn't a reckless pursuit. And so here's what he does. In chapter 2, he starts to pursue these things. So he pursues happiness. The best that life has to offer that will give him happiness. And he experiences happiness or the things that can lead to happiness in their fullest measure. And, and then he, he pursues creativity. He designs gardens. He does things. He has great projects. He, he pursues his work, his career, if you like. And he pursues status and wealth and love and knowledge. And as I say, he pursues all those things with intensity, but not recklessly. My mind's still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their life. And he's successful. He's more successful than anybody's been before him. He is, in many ways, the most successful person in the Old Testament. Even Jesus looks back on Solomon and says, what an amazing guy he was. Splendid, magnificent. He achieves everything. And do you know what he concludes? He says, at the end of the day, when I looked at everything I'd achieved, all my success, I hated life. I hated life. Because I realized that if you pursue anything in life under the sun as if that will give you ultimate meaning and satisfaction, it does not work. And so if you're chasing after your career because you think your career is going to actually bring your life together, Solomon would say to you, it doesn't work. If you're chasing after relationships and love and thinking, if I could just change the person I'm married to or if I could find somebody in my life, then my life would come together. And Solomon says having a great relationship with somebody is fantastic, but if you're looking for meaning in life and purpose, you're a fool because you won't find it. There's a phrase that he uses time after time again. It's translated in the Bibles you've got, meaningless, meaningless. It doesn't work. So, here are four reasons why it doesn't work. And that meaningless is the first reason. Everything is fleeting, nothing lasts. So if you build your life on the foundation of career, relationship, success, money, anything, it cannot sustain a life of meaning and purpose because nothing lasts. I don't know whether you've noticed. You don't take anything with you. Have you noticed that? One day you will have to leave the dream home that you currently live in. Either because... They put you in a home somewhere, or you go into a hospital, or because the undertaker comes and takes you out feet first. Everything is fleeting. 
relationships, power, success, everything. It's like a mist. I was up in uh, Katima some a year or so ago, and uh, it was fairly early in the morning. Well, it was early in the morning for me. And uh, I went just on the edge of the town, and you know you can look down into the valleys from Katoomba. It's extraordinary, isn't it? And this morning, the valleys were filled with this dense mist. It looked so substantial. You you imagined that you could throw yourself on it, and, and you would float. Which, of course, is nonsense. But something else happened. The sun came up, and what seemed to be so dense and thick evaporated. And Solomon tells us, that's like everything under the sun. Your career, your family, your name, reputation, if you've got it, your happiness, All of it, like a mist, it will evaporate. And therefore, if you invest your life, build your life on those things, seek ultimate meaning and purpose in those things, you will discover that life is meaningless. It's like a vapor. It just evaporates. That's the first reason. Second reason is because there's a certain twistedness in the world. I don't know whether you've noticed... But sometimes you make the best plans you could possibly make. You seek the best advice. You read up on something. Everybody says, fantastic, that's the way to go. And you do it, and then it just falls apart. Have you ever done that? You think, where did that come from? That seemed to be the wisest thing I've ever done. I didn't do it recklessly. I applied knowledge and wisdom and insight, and it fell apart. And sometimes that's what happens in life. There is a crookedness. There's something woven into the fabric of life that means sometimes wise decisions turn out not to work. There's a certain capriciousness about life. Have a look at page 666. Page 666, chapter 6 and verse 11. I've seen something else under the sun. Verse 11, chapter 6. I've seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. Moreover, no one knows when their hour will come. As fish are caught in a cruel net or birds taken in a snare, so people are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly on them. As, as the writer puts it in chapter 1 and verse 15, there's something crooked and it can't be straightened out. That is how the world is. Or, or take another example. Let's suppose you're a businesswoman or a businessman and you have built up a business. You've sacrificed well, lots of time, lots of emotional energy, lots of intellectual energy, uh, maybe even sacrificed your family to some extent 
because you've been working to build up this company. And you're so pleased with what you've achieved. It has built up a reputation. The people in Willoughby know your name and the reputation of your firm. And you're going to hand it on to the next generation. And so you're really pleased for them because you think my son or my daughter is going to take this on. That's fantastic. It will be good for them, but also into the foreseeable future, my name will be there. And I've worked so hard for this. There are lots of examples of businesses that have been built up by considerable effort and and toil and then passed on to the next generation. And the next generation turns out to be a bunch of reckless fools. And they squander everything. Think about that. That would mean you've spent 50 years working for a fool. (laughs) That's meaningless, isn't it? It is absurd. There is something about life that is twisted. So number one, everything's fleeting. Everything, including us. Number two, there's a twistedness in the world. We never know what's going to happen. We don't know what's around the corner. The uh, classical writer Ovid said, you should only assess a person's life after they've died because only then can you work out whether it was a happy life or not. Call no one happy till they're dead. Here's the third one. People will let you down, sometimes very badly. Please would you turn to page 667. Page 667. Chapter 7. And verse 26. Now, I want you to take a deep breath at this point. Go and have an extra coffee afterwards. Struggle with yourself to suspend your sense of cultural superiority. Verse 26, I find more bitter than death the woman who is a snare, whose trap is a, heart is a trap and whose hands are chains. The man who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner she will ensnare. Now, before you have a fit and criticize him for not having the benefit of being born after Mary Wollstonecraft, that he's not writing as a feminist writer with all the blessings of the insights that we've had about the rights of women. Put your cultural superiority aside. He's not writing in the 21st century. He's writing in the ancient Near East. So let's not dismiss what he's saying. Let's ask what what his point is. What's the point? He's using an image here of an alluring woman. She seems to be promising so much. It's so powerful. So attractive. But in this particular illustration, she doesn't care. She's out for herself. And people who respond to her are destroyed. What is his point? His point is that there are some people male and female, 
who seem to have your best interests at heart and seem to be offering you so much, and yet they will destroy you if you follow them. That's what he's saying. Some of the most... It's interesting, it seems to me, that the example he uses is as a relational one, a sexual one, because isn't that so often an area that seems to promise so much, to be so life-affirming, so full of joy, and he uses it as an illustration of what can be destructive. Sometimes the most destructive people in our lives can be the people closest to us. People will let you down. Some people may wreck your life. And in the end, all of us will prove untrustworthy. All of us. Chapter 7, verse 28. While I was searching, but not finding, I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. This only have I found. God created mankind upright, but they have gone in seek of many schemes. Now, by, by the way, those of you who are engineers, just take a deep breath here. This is literature. You know that one in a thousand and nobody, you know, it, it's not a mathematical formula. What's his point? Well, maybe he expected more of women than he expected of men. I know that men will let me down. I know you can't always trust men. But I do expect a great deal from women. A bit more anyway than from men. Maybe that's the point. But the overall point is this. All of us will prove untrustworthy at some point. And if we've lived long enough, we already have. There are some people whose lives have been messed up because you weren't trustworthy. Isn't that right? Isn't that right for all of us? People will let you down. And that can wreck people's lives. God created mankind upright, but they've gone in search of many schemes. If you invest your life in life under the sun, you're going to discover it doesn't work. Because everything's like vapor. It just disappears. Because there's a twistedness in the world and in life, and even if you're enjoying yourself now, there's no guarantee that you'll be able to enjoy that tomorrow or next week. And in the end, you can't take anything with you. People will let you down, and some of the most painful experiences in life are when people prove untrustworthy. And we've all done it to somebody, all of us. And then the last thing, you'll never know enough. Sometimes we think, if only I had more knowledge, more understanding, more wisdom, if, if I could understand what God is doing, for example... Let me tell you, you'll never know enough to be able to fundamentally change life. Never. There's never enough wisdom, never enough insight about life to be able to make it all come together. Chapter 7 and verse 14, no one can discover anything about the future. Even if you're okay today, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't know 
about ourselves. We don't understand about life. And in fact, chapter 1 and verse 18 suggests that the more we know, the more we sense we don't know and the greater the sense of the confusion. Because we realize the more we know that there is just so much more that we don't know. And there's a great gaping hole in our knowledge. With much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. And do you know? Do you know the biggest thing? At the end of the day, we don't know what God's up to. We know some things. We know some things. So Solomon can write about how God knows stuff and how he will one day bring everything to judgment. And he's at work. And we live on the other side of the New Testament of Jesus, and so we live on the side of the cross and the resurrection. And we know that everything comes to a climax in Jesus and that he's conquered sin and death on the cross. And we know that the future is resurrection. Well, tell me, as you look back over your own life, never mind history as a whole, as you look back over your own life, do you know what God has been doing in your life, in everything that's happened? The answer is, let me tell you, you don't. And if you think you do, come and speak to me afterwards, because I need to put you right. You don't. Chapter 5 says God is in heaven and we're on earth. And so there are times when we just need to shut up and say, I don't need it. And we don't even know Living as we do on the other side of the cross and the resurrection, we don't even know what the future in the new creation is going to be like. We know it's going to be wonderful. We know that it's going to be something like what happened to Jesus, that what happened to him, he is the prototype, so we will be raised. What's life in the new creation going to be like? I have no idea. I have some inklings, but I really don't know what I do know is that it will be amazing and it will be wonderful and eye has not seen nor ear heard what God has in store for those who love him. We live our life with the profoundest ignorance. And so we'll never know enough. So four things. Everything is fleeting. There's a twist in life. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. People will let you down and you'll never know enough. And if you search for meaning and purpose only in the things of life under the sun, here's what you tend to find. And all you need to do is walk down the streets of Willoughby or sit in a coffee shop long enough and you can see it all the time. You'll typically see people who are incredibly driven. Life is so full, they're so busy, they're chasing after the career, they're chasing after the success for their family, they have no time for everything, they're keeping the show on the road and trying to make it better. There's this constant search for more, for the next thing, and to preserve what they have. Why? Because they're seeking for meaning and purpose in life under the sun, and it's not found there. Or you'll find people being dis becoming disillusioned and even succumbing to despair because our, some of our most cherished dreams get shattered. We think if that one thing happened, that one person comes into my life and says, yes, then it will all begin to make sense, and it doesn't happen. 
people succumb to disillusionment and despair or resignation. My life is what it is. There's nothing I can do about it. I just have to put up with it. Or anger. There are a lot of angry people around. Angry with themselves, angry with circumstances, angry with other people. If it hadn't been for him or for her, for that boss or those colleagues or those neighbors or those friends, my life would be so much better. It's their fault. Angry with themselves, with others, with circumstances, and angry with God. Angry with God. Like Solomon, some people would say, chapter 2, verse 17, I hated life. Now, why is Solomon telling us all this? Because you notice the title of the series, it's a beautiful life. And some of you are thinking, probably, this is so depressing. Let me tell you what's going on here in Ecclesiastes. We are so prone to delude ourselves, to live a fantasy world, to imagine that if life is going well, it will always be like that, and there's a shouldness about it. That's how life should be. And there's all kinds of stuff around that fuel the delusion. All you have to do is watch the adverts. The greatest time of your life, apparently, is going to be when you move into a retirement home. <laughs> really? The writer to the Ecclesiastes wants to do two things. He wants us to be utterly realistic about life as it is. He wants to shatter the illusions and the delusions and say, let's have a look at life as it really is. That is, life under the sun It's characterized by impermanence. It's characterized by the twist that there is in the universe where you can't be sure what's going to happen and bad things do happen. Where people can shatter your life and where in the end you'll never be able to work everything out and you'll never know enough to be able to control your life and your circumstances. He wants us to be realistic about life because our tendency is not to be. And he wants us to do that so that we will live out the life that God has given each of us. And they're all different. Live them out. Recognizing that they're a gift from God. And even though there are things I don't understand about life and even things I don't like about my life, there is something of God in this, and he has something for me, and thereby discover a measure of contentment about your life, as it is, and mine. That's why he does it. So how should we live? Last two things. We need to live with humility. Humility. We're not very good at humility. We like to think that we are the measure of everything and one day we'll be able to work everything out. That's a collective thing, but it's also an individual thing. We need to live with humility. There's all kinds of stuff we do not know. And in this life, we will not know because God is God and we are not and he hasn't told us. Chapter 5, verse 2. God is in heaven, you're on earth. Shut up. I'm paraphrasing Shut up. Let your words be few. 
recognize that God is God and you are not. And he is at work and he does know what he's doing and nothing will ever be lost to him. So pursue knowledge and wisdom. Find out as much as you can. But recognize in the end. You know, I don't know. But that's okay. But that's okay. Because God is God and I'm not. Live with humility. Secondly, don't invest in life under the sun as if it's everything. You know, there's a a phrase that's repeated in various forms through the book, which is really interesting. Um, We say things like this, you get it towards the end of chapter 2, a person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. If God gives you a career to enjoy, enjoy it. If he gives you family and relationships and they're good, enjoy them. Enjoy what God has given this life, this existence, this life under the sun, this material existence is a gift. It's to be enjoyed, but it's also fragile. Don't build your life on it as if it's everything. Don't pursue the ultimate meaning for your life in your career or even in relationships or in success or money. Because our wise guide, Solomon, says, I've tried that and let me tell you, it doesn't work. It's not meant to work. So I want to finish with some words of Jesus. So would you turn, please, to the New Testament? And to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. And you'll find it on page 1044. 1044. Luke chapter 12 and verse 22. Luke 24. 22. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life and what you will eat or about your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food. Pause. Life, the body, is more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They don't sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barns, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Since you can't do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wildflowers grow. They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And don't set your hearts on what you will eat or drink. Don't worry about it. 
For the pagan world runs after all these things. And your father knows that you need them, but seek his kingdom. And these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the poor, provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail when no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Don't make stuff, good things, your treasure. Enjoy what you can while you can for as long as you can. It's a gift. But hold on to those things lightly. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Don't build your life on what's passing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us and we pray that you will write it not just into our minds, but Father, into our hearts and wills as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.